Welcome, everybody. I'm David. I'm Michelle. Welcome to our last episode of Season 1 on Expiration Date. In this episode, we're going to break it down into three parts. For the first part of the episode, we're going to look at what the trial is and its role in the criminal legal system and in American culture. Secondly, we're going to share our thoughts on current events that are important to our overall message. And lastly, we're going to talk about Season 2 and 3. So in our last episode, we discussed the 13th Amendment and prison labor. And I want to talk about two words that do a lot of heavy lifting when we talk about using people um, that are imprisoned as slaves. Uh, We're going to talk about the phrase duly convicted, because that's an important part of the 13th Amendment where it talks about uh, we abolish slavery except for those who have been duly convicted of a crime. And so what does it mean to be duly convicted? In this episode, we're going to discuss the trial. As we have talked about on this podcast before, criminal trials represent less than 5% of all criminal cases. 94% of state and 97% of federal crimes end in a plea deal. So the vast majority of criminal cases end in a plea deal. Part of the reason for this is because trials are time-consuming and costly. We can discuss later whether this is a bug or a feature. But taking a case to trial can cause the same crime to be punished far more harshly than the crime would be if it was negotiated with a plea deal. The conviction rate for cases that go to trial is also remarkably high. So not only is taking a plea deal sometimes the smart thing to do, it is actually extremely risky to go to trial, even if you are innocent. When defendants do choose to go to trial, they find that the bulk of the budget and power lies in the hands of the prosecution, not the defense. Not only is the office of the prosecutor better staffed and better funded, They control the charges, the bail, the evidence, and the plea deal. They have a remarkable amount of discretion about what to turn over as far as evidence and very little oversight about what they do decide to turn over. And in the rare cases when they are found guilty of withholding evidence that could show that someone is innocent, the consequences for that are laughable. They work with the police. They work with the judges. So even before the trial begins, the power is stacked in opposition to the defendant. I think that many people in the United States take comfort in the thought of a jury trial. It is written in the Sixth Amendment of our Constitution that we have the right to a trial by jury made up of our peers. But our history is steeped in making sure that people of color do not have this luxury. I could show you countless training videos where law professors teach young prosecutors how to avoid placing people of color on the jury when the defendant is also a person of color. Why? Because white jurors have a tendency to convict people of color at a much higher rate. This is good for prosecutors. Again, as always, what I'm saying is backed up with studies that I will link in the show notes. In 1986, a landmark case, Batson v. Kentucky, a case about this very subject of excluding black people from juries, led to what is called a Batson challenge, where the defense can claim that the prosecution is purposefully excluding jurors of color. However, most law scholars agree this case is actually a failure and makes it easier to exclude black jurors. So the rule that was intended to stop this actually makes it easier to do. Because what the rule says is that you have to prove before the court in three complicated steps that the prosecution had a racially motivated intent. If the prosecution can state that they had a racially neutral reason for excluding a person of color, it doesn't stick. For example, In Foster v. Chapman, 
This was a murder trial in Georgia where the defendant was black and all of the prospective black jurors were struck by the prosecution. When Foster's appeal demanded a new trial citing a Batson violation because the prosecutor's notes had highlighted and numbered the potential black jurors, even stating that if they had to have a black juror, one of these might be okay, it was denied, basically because the prosecution said we weren't discriminating, we did note who was black, but we excluded them from other reasons, and the court sided with the prosecution. It's a weird area, too, because maybe it's not a weird area, I don't know, but if you're going to examine someone, whether they're male or female or by other demographic characteristics, their race and background is part of it. However, mm-hmm. I guess if you were to specifically exclude someone based on race, I mean, I don't know. It's like stacking the deck in, in football or something like that, too, right? Well, and two, what's so crazy is they, like in that case, they had the prosecutor's notes where the prosecutor specifically said, this is a black, per-. like they wrote it on their notes. They wrote, there were four prospective black jurors in the Foster case, and they wrote on each of those jurors' cards, B1, B2, B3, B4, right. and they highlighted them in green, and then specifically said on their notes, we're highlighting them in green because these are black people that we do not want on the jury. Yeah. And all the prosecutor had to say was, well, we did note their race, but that's all we did. We just noted it. We just excluded them for other reasons. And the reason that you want to have someone on there is because of, I think, is this what it says in the amendment? Is that you were judged by a panel of your peers? Mm-hmm. And I mean... With our racist history in the United States, you can't be a panel of peers if you don't have someone who to a certain degree looks like you. Yeah. And that's a lot of things. That's something that like reform justice people point out is if somebody's tried in a, com- in a community that they committed the crime, then the jury should reflect the demographics of the community. And in black communities and people of color in Latinx communities, we do not see that. Like it, prosecutors go out of their way to ensure that they have all white juries. And the reason for that is because they get higher conviction rates. And that's good for, that makes them more, you know, it gets their conviction rates up, which makes them more powerful politically. Is there anything that would exclude you from jury duty? So, for example, like if you've committed a felony? Yes. So I don't believe you can serve on a jury for a multitude of reasons, and felony is one of them. Um, so and so you, if you're a felon, you can't serve on a jury? I don't think so. Okay. We might have to fact check that, but I don't I don't think so. And it would be a reason that somebody would be excluded, because they specifically ask about criminal history. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people ask if you've been the victim of a crime, or how you feel about... And now they ask questions like, how do you feel about Black Lives Matter? Have you been to protests? And mm-hmm. so now they're excluding white people based on that stuff. And so it's, it's, it's an mm-hmm. interesting development. But interesting. For sure. Another aspect to jury selection is that an unknown number of municipal courts farm out jury selection to private tech companies. John Oliver did a story about this on how private companies not only profited from more criminal trials, but they tended to set parameters to ensure that the jury pool was predominantly white. I'm going to link the video. He goes into detail on exactly how they do this, because a lot of people say, well, if you're just writing code, it can't be racist. And then it's like, well, if the people writing it are racist, your code is going to be racist. Mm. And so I'm not saying that computers are racist, but I am saying that computer code is just... It's a reflection of who you are. Yeah. So as we can see, even before the trial begins, people of color are at a remarkable disadvantage. This next part was one of the hardest parts of the entire podcast for me to write. For reasons that we will get into later. Let's talk about forensic evidence. I feel like there should be some sort of like awesome soundtrack that goes with that, like NCIS style. Bum, bum. Yeah. 
Oh, wait, that's Law and Order. (laughs) I don't know. Let's try that again. Forensic evidence. Go ahead. Let's talk about forensic evidence. Dun, dun. In 2009, the National Academy of Science did a study that showed that most of the so-called forensic science that lay people have heard of does not meet the basic standards of science. Everything from bite marks to tire marks to handwriting analysis to blood spatter to shoe prints to firearm analysis to fingerprints to bullet markings. It's not like CSI and does not hold up to scientific scrutiny. Why is it so common in our criminal legal system? Because a lot of people make a lot of money from testifying about this so-called science. And they watch it on TV. It's like Hollywood science. Yeah, and we're going to get into that in a minute. Also, with outside testing of reliable things like DNA analysis or drug screens, many of the labs are not paid unless the prosecution gets a conviction. So again, we see a profit motive in conviction, leading to something like more reliable like DNA at the mercy of private labs with little oversight. In many cases, when these labs are audited, they fail to meet basic safety standards. This one was really hard for me, and I've linked a ton of articles for you to look at in detail that go over how all of this does not meet basic science standards. And if you want to talk about it, I would love to do that. I know it goes against the narrative of American culture. And let's briefly touch on that. Now, I want to deviate a little bit and talk about the cultural aspect of CSI. As I have admitted, my previous obsession with true crime, the gateway to this was forensic science shows. Criminal Minds, CSI, Law & Order, Dexter... All of these shows tout the gold standard and ironclad accountability of forensic science. The cops and the prosecutors are the heroes. The judges are firm but fair and provide checks and balances that protect their communities. You could argue that the entertainment industry has had a 70-year love affair with law and order. Why? Sometime when we have more time, we can talk about how police unions and rich conservatives has ensured close ties with the pro-law and order narrative in the entertainment industry. But we just don't have time to get into it right now. Police unions pay for all of those shows, and they let them use all their equipment. Dick Wolf, the guy that produces all the like right. CSI and NCIS and all those dramas, he parties with the police unions, and they, they fund this kind of stuff. What's to What's the benefit? So when you have a place like America that much of, like so many people make so much money off of this system and that keeps rich white conservatives in power you have a lot of people interested in keeping the status quo that's what conservative means we want to conserve the power where it is we want to conserve the system where it is and so we know the deck is stacked the process is unfair and the conviction rate is high let's briefly touch on what happens after a conviction appealing a court's decision is costly complicated and rarely successful because the court places a high value on its own previous decisions. That's what precedent means. We saw this with Liddell's case. In his original trial, the blood and hair evidence was linked to him because the court had, quote-unquote, proven that it was his. The prosecution successfully said that the blood type was a potential match, and the hair matched microscopic analysis. In lay terms, this basically means that the blood could not rule him out, which means nothing, And that the hair was just a hair of a black person is really all it means. The Innocence Project argued that this DNA had never been tested with modern technology, so it should be considered new evidence. The court disagreed. This is the norm. New exculpatory evidence that has not been examined by the court is uncommon 
and even when it does exist, the litigious nature of our appeals process can supersede it. For example, there are two guys, Kevin Strickland and Lamar Johnson in Missouri, that have been in prison for decades for murders that the state knows they did not commit, and the AG refuses to let them out because they have quote-unquote run out of appeals. Their innocence is irrelevant. I've linked an article that goes into more detail about both their cases. Are those guys people of color? Yeah. They're both black men. So their advocacy pool is not what it could be no. up against the AG. Well, and even the even the DA in both of their cases has said, like, this was completely, the evidence against them was completely fabricated. It is obvious that these two men had nothing to do with the crimes that they are convicted of. And Kevin Strickland has been in prison for over 40 years. Mm. And the state knows he's innocent. And they asked the governor, the um, DA actually reached out to the governor and said, please, will you consider pardoning him? And the governor was like, this is not a priority for me, were his exact words. So the, do you think the, the courts were fearful to, to kind of like that, let this person go as a result of establishing some sort of precedent for future cases? Oh, I'm sure. So it would, it would do several things. So it would, it would establish precedent for reviewing cases. I think I'm not a lawyer, but I, I, from what I understand, yes, that is the case. And two, if you admit that somebody was innocent and they've been in prison for 43 years, it would make them look bad um, and they don't want that. And two, you would have to compensate them right. financially. Mm-hmm. Now, most states have a pretty low cap on what they will compensate wrongly imprisoned peoples. So it's not just the money in this situation. It's more the, I think, the precedent and the reputation loss that they would suffer. Because they don't want that. They don't want people to think that tons of innocent people are behind bars for decades. This was an emotional episode for me to research because I feel like the outcome was one of the most disappointing. I spent years having a lot of faith in prosecutors, police, in the courtroom. I remember when Making a Murderer came out on Netflix. And I was so shocked that it looked like cops had planted evidence and the prosecution did not seem to care that this man might be innocent. And since starting research for this podcast a few years ago, all I'm going to say is there is a reason that most popular true crime focuses on middle to upper middle class white people. Why? Because um, the stuff that we think is so egregious that happens to upper middle class white people in the criminal legal system happens to people of color and poor people daily, Mm -hmm. every day. I remember making a murder was really the first time I had seen somebody make a good argument that like a police department had planted evidence. And now I was on TikTok this morning and I saw a video of a cop planting drugs on somebody, like, and the person just took the video. And I mean, it's not at all uncommon. And a really, really cool article came out recently about the sheriff gangs in LA um, in the police departments. I'll, I'll link that too, so you can go read it. It's very interesting. Break it down a little bit more for people who don't have time to go read it. Well, it's um, so basically in, in big places where the real estate market, like New York and L.A. and places like that, the police departments are made up of tons of different kinds of gangs. What? Yeah, it's crazy, especially in L.A. Like established gangs? Yeah. Like Bloods and Crips? Well, like- I think it's insulting to the Bloods and Crips to compare them to the sheriff gangs that will exist in L.A. Like so. Hell's Angels with a badge? Well, Less yeah. drugs, more, more lot intimidation. A more, lot, lot more drugs. 
Probably, yeah. Okay, so now we've reached the second section of our episode where we're going to talk about our final thoughts about the criminal legal system as we exit this season. I would give the United States criminal legal system two out of ten stars. I would not recommend it. Uh, The only reason it got two stars is because our defense attorneys, to the defense attorneys that are out there fighting, especially to the public defenders, thank you for what you're doing. I know you're fighting an uphill battle. So now we got some current events I want to poke just to foster some discussion and to give our opinions because this really didn't fit into any of our other episodes where we could bring it up casually. And I tried. Don't get me wrong. So the first current event I want to talk about, mass mandates, vaccine requirements, and critical race theory. Though we're not going to get into the medical industrial complex until season three, one thing I want to point out is people like Governor DeSantis that are super against vaccines and mass mandates. And the reason for that is he doesn't care about mass mandates. He cares about gaining political points. He doesn't care if your kids wear masks or not because that doesn't mean anything to him. Uh, He doesn't care about your kids. So if you're one of these people that's defending this narrative of, oh, we need to have the parents' choice. I don't I don't think parents should be able to choose whether they leave their kids in a hot car or not. And I also don't think that if you're going to a public school, you should be able to decide whether you have a mask on or not. If you want to stay home, if you want to keep your kid home and homeschool them, that's fine. Or if you want to send them to private school, that's fine. And vaccine requirements. The United States has been requiring vaccines to attend public schools for 100 years. Uh, it's how we eradicated polio. Please stop. Like, And all these people saying stuff like, oh, this va- it's too fast. Um, this vaccine was studied far more than any vaccine in history. It's safe. It's effective. A lot of people that are scared of the long-term effects of a vaccine. In the history of vaccinations, we see problems with vaccinations occur in the early weeks after vaccinations. The things that we see come up decades later are from viral infections. So like chickenpox, you know, 50 years later, you get shingles with like the herpes virus. You get eruptions for the rest of your life, whether it's wherever you get it, um, because there's different types of herpes. But and we see things like this occur decades later with viruses and COVID, long term COVID. We have no idea what's going to happen with COVID in 10, 15, 20, 50 years. But I can promise you that it is not going to be good. And that's my opinion as a healthcare provider. I think you laid out a lot of good points, specifically about requiring vaccinations for school. I keep thinking about is that there's always a choice. Like the the mandating of masks, the mandating of, of vaccines, that kind of stuff, it doesn't take away your choice it just gives you a choice that you don't like where you feel like you don't have it but you're still having that choice you know don't send your kids to school don't work at this job don't feel like you have to have that and step off your entitled privileged self and look at the rest of the world and figure out what's going on there too and too we address this in our school to prison pipeline episode like the goal of the gop is to defund public education and push those dollars into private education. That's really all this is. Well, and one thing I want to address, too, is something that we haven't been hearing on the news is, well, I'm sorry, CNN and MSNBC are not talking about this, but Fox News is really pushing this narrative that the communities of color are the ones that are not getting vaccinated. And though the vaccination rate amongst 
some communities of color is lower than the average of the white communities, two things. Saying that it's a majority of people that are unvaccinated or in people of, uh, or in populations of color is completely untrue because like African-Americans represent 13% of the population. And so it's just, it's just inaccurate to say that. And secondly, when people of color distrust the medical system, it's very, very different than a white conservative saying, my personal freedom says I don't have to get this vaccine because of the medical experimentation and the state-sponsored persecution of people of color. You have to be very careful when you dictate, when as a white person, you dictate what people of color should do. Leave that narrative. There are tons of black creators on social media that are trying to address this. And really just we need to amplify their voices and not not step in that because we don't understand it. No, I, you're absolutely right. You but know what I mean? That takes us recognizing our privilege and, yes. and setting it aside, which is a difficult thing to do for many people. Yes. And that's another conversation I would love to have with anyone who feels convicted towards that or doesn't know how to do that. I think we could be a good a good pivot point for that as well. But the perspective that the minority communities have as far as healthcare and as you said, the manipulation of them through that is something that we we don't understand and we need to give them space to let them come to it. And the second thing I want to talk about is that it really didn't fit anywhere into the flow of any of our episodes, but we had briefly touched on at one point the amount of people um, that were killed during the Chauvin trial. And there was a break that we took when David was on vacation, staying in a tent somewhere. Probably. Yeah. That's my, like, David, my, my David idea of vacation. David stays in tents. I don't I love know. It. No cell know. phones. No electricity. I love electricity. No running water. Oh, God. Lots of bourbon. <laughs> um, and so during one of our long breaks, I did a deep dive into the amount of people that were killed during the Chauvin trial because I had, I had said on here, I think the last number I quoted was 65. I started to look into where the particular article in the New York Times I was reading had gotten that number, and it was woefully inaccurate. So I compiled a list of people that in the 23 days of the Derek Chauvin trial that were killed by the police, and it's 122 names long. We recorded an episode where I gave the name, the demographic, and the story, and the police department of each individual person. And we'll probably post that at some point on the Patreon because it's really unlistenable. It's, it's just... It's heavy, but it's, it's important. It is heavy and important. But the, it's, it would be easier if you're interested for me to email you the Google document that I made about it because it's easier just to read than it is to listen to because I get out of breath because I'm very emotional. So if you want, I will send you the list and everybody says, well, why, why would I want that list? And it's because during our break between season one and season two, expiration date has a homework assignment for you. We want you to call the police departments that killed people and we want you to ask for accountability. And I know that that can be nerve wracking as someone who has very recently done that, their response might surprise you because there are still some good people that work at police departments and sometimes you can get in touch with them. Will you share that with us? Yes. I think I've shared before when we talked about when we were doing the KSP episode about the Hitler, the Hitler education yeah. <laughs> where the guy was like, this guy Hitler. 
Adolf has got some good ideas. The person that I reached out to shared an um, um, unbelievable amount of information with me. A lot of people want to call like the mayor's, which I've done, where you call like the governor's office or the mayor's office, they will redirect you to the police department. And so it's best just to call the police department. So if you'll reach out to me, I will send you a few different names of people that I really feel like the killings were completely unjustified. And several of the 122 names are just as egregious as George Floyd's murder. Um, It just wasn't filmed by like nine people. So give me a call or send us an email and I will send you a list. So now we're going to talk about upcoming seasons of expiration date. Season two is going to be about the military industrial complex. And I want to read this quote. And this is the first time David is hearing this, I think, probably. And if he's heard it before, he can stop me. But I want him to, at the end of this, I want him to guess who this was and when it was written. I don't like this game, but go ahead. (laughs) I love this game. It's like our David. Guess when this was? I know. And it was 2019. Okay. It's a good Patreon episode as well. (laughs) War is just a racket. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the few at the expense of the masses. I believe in an adequate defense at the coastline and nothing else. If a nation comes over here to fight, we'll fight. The trouble with America is that the dollar only earns 6% over here, and then when it gets restless and goes overseas to get 100%, the flag follows the dollar, and the soldiers follow the flag. I wouldn't go to war again, as I have done to protect some lousy investment of the bankers. There are only two things we should fight for. One is the defense of our homes, and the other is the defense of the Bill of Rights. War, for any other reason, is a racket. There isn't a trick in the racketeering bag that the military gang is blind to. It has its fingermen to point out enemies. It has its muscle men to destroy enemies. It has its brain men to plan war preparations. And a big boss, super nationalistic capitalism. It may seem odd for me, a military man, to adopt such a comparison. Truthfulness compels me to. I spent 33 years and four months in active military service as a member of this country's most agile military force, the Marine Corps. I served in all commissioned ranks from second lieutenant to major general, and during that period I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I suspected I was part of the racket at the time, but now I am sure of it. I helped make Mexico safe for American oil interests. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for National Citibank boys to collect revenues. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. The record of racketeering is long. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests. In China, I helped to see that the standard oil went on its way unmolested. Looking back on it, 
I feel that I could have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was operate his racket in three districts. I operated in three continents. I don't know that you would know his name because I didn't before I read this speech, but give me an idea of who you think that might have been in the time that it might have been. I want to say something like Colin Powell, but I'm not sure. That was a speech given by Major General Smedley Butler of the United States Marine Corps in 1933. You're kidding me. 33? 1933. Uh, He went on to write a book about this speech uh, where he lays out more of how he was just a strong arm for capitalism. Who was the speech to? He gave it at his retirement. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was a bold move. Um, it's like a great FU to yeah, a career in military was, yeah, service. Yeah, and he was, I mean, a uh, major general. So, anyway. In the Marines. Thank I was had all these ideas, and then you said Marines. I said, I don't know who it is. Yeah. So, thank you, Major General Smedley Butler. Our third and final season of Expiration Date will be about the medical industrial complex. In some ways, this will be the most applicable for our listeners because Almost every single person that I can think of has come in contact with this complex. And if you think the medical industrial complex can't be nearly as exciting as the prison or the military, we're going to have a whole episode on witches and why you think they're green. And in true expiration date form, it is not for a fun reason. Thanks for listening today. Thanks for being a part of season one of Expiration Date. And have to commend Michelle for the brainchild that is Expiration Date and all the work and research she put into it. And what really is just a deep longing to seek justice into the world and to do that through bringing people to understand stuff in a different way. So good on you, Michelle, for that. Keep it up. And we're excited to see what season two and season three are. And I just want to thank David and his remarkable ability to make me sound coherent. Thanks again for listening to season one. If you'd like to support us on our Patreon, check out patreon.com slash expiration date. You can email us at expiration date, the podcast and follow us on Twitter, expiration date, the Poe. Do us a favor, head over to Apple podcasts and rate and review us. Give us five stars if you think we deserve it. And a little summary of how this podcast has helped you. It'll help get expiration date out to more people. Thanks, and come back for season two. Thanks, guys.